Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Everybody, welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News, joined us from Atlantic Canada and Hurricane Dorian. Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos, on the poll which shows Canadians say society is broken and Canadians don't believe politicians really represent them any longer. Dennis McConaughey was a 40-year veteran of the energy industry. His new book is Breakdown. It has to do with pipelines and taking care of the environment, and why can't we work out the two? You'll hear Dennis McConaughey. Catherine Swift, the CEO, former CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, now working Canadians, on why Canadians feel our society is broken. And David Jacobs is a radiologist, but he's also a force on Twitter. All of that coming up. Hurricane Dorian in Atlantic Canada, heading into Atlantic Canada and back to a Category 2 storm. And the, uh, there are great concerns about what could happen in, uh, in that part of our country. And joining us to speak about the conditions in Atlantic Canada, Anthony Farnell, Global News Chief Meteorologist. Anthony, thank you very much for taking the time. Anthony, can you hear me? I have a salty, watered phone that I've just been outside with for the last hour so. I'm just going to tell you what uh, I'm dealing with here. We're getting very close to making a landfall with Hurricane uh, Dorian. Uh, This is a Category 2 storm now. It's actually intensified some. There's some winds on the backside that they found measuring about 160 kilometers per hour. So it is, uh, yeah, things are going downhill here. Over 200,000 hydro customers in Nova Scotia in the dark. And uh, the water levels have been going up in the harbor as well. We just uh, went down there and saw a storm surge uh, that was coming up so uh yeah it's uh it's it's a hurricane that uh, they haven't seen here in quite some time so anthony this is more than was expected uh, yesterday right well yeah the track was always supposed to come very close to halifax and that was the concern that these winds would uh, basically move over this city and surrounding areas but it's such a large storm hurricane dorian since it was in uh, the bahamas obviously it was catastrophic for them category five strength it was a much smaller system now it is basically all the maritimes all of atlantic canada with these big winds and just torrential rain it has just been drenching throughout the day today and that is a, another facet of this storm. yeah we were mostly on the western side of the track now we're having difficulty with your phone line i'll ask you one other question uh, how prepared is uh, is atlantic canada for this it's more than they expected are they I, I it's silly to ask are they ready for it but how ready are they well, I would say they're a lot more prepared than they used to be. And uh, Maritimers, they, they deal with winter storms all the time. They deal with these big nor'easters. So uh, they have a, a different attitude about this weather. But Hurricane Juan, which hit in 2003, that changed everything. That one surprised a lot of people. And it caused city officials to basically have a plan for this type of storm. And this is not going to be the same strength, the same destruction in Halifax that Juan caused, but it did uh, wake some people up. So uh, over the last couple of days, we've seen people just 
stocking up, uh, preparing to be without power for not just a day, but perhaps uh, up to a week. And that is what uh, some authorities are saying, that this is going to take some time to get everybody back on the grid because of just the number of tree branches and trees that are, are still follow, uh, falling and littering the city right now. What a massive storm. Anthony, thank you very much for the time. We'll talk to you tomorrow. All right, thanks a lot. Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News, joining us from uh, Halifax. And clearly, uh, they're getting more than they had expected, with uh, Dorian now back to being a Category 2 storm. But he's right. Uh, people in Atlantic Canada are accustomed to heavy storms, so they may fare better, depending on what happens to infrastructure, than many others in uh, in other parts of the, the country might. Anyway, we wish them all the best, and we'll, we'll stay in touch, and we'll be back with uh, Anthony tomorrow. Let's talk now about the, uh, the poll, the, uh, the poll that Ipsos Reid, Ipsos Reid, that uh, Ipsos uh, Global Affairs released for Global News uh, Canada. And uh, those, these numbers are the ones that we've been, uh, we've been discussing a little bit. 52% of Canadians believe Canada society is broken. 19% disagree, 28% are neutral. Uh, Canada's economy is rigged to advantage the rich and the powerful. 67% say that's the case. 21% are neutral. Uh, 10% disagree, 3% don't know. Another fascinating part of this, and uh, I don't think this is actually going to take too many people by surprise, but it is extremely interesting given the fact that we're just weeks away from a federal election. Traditional political parties and politicians don't care about people like me. 61% say that is the case. 12% disagree, 24% have uh, no real opinion on it. And immigrants take important social services away from real Canadians. 41% say that is the case. 34% say no, 22% are neutral. Daryl Bricker is the CEO and president of Ipsos Global Affairs. He's uh, He joins us on the Roy Green Show, also co-author of The Big Shift, The Seismic Shift in Canadian Politics, Business and Culture, and What It Means for Our Future. Prophetic book, Daryl. A lot. Well, thank you very much, Roy. I appreciate that. So, wh- wh- where are we? What is this? Can we just get an umbrella view of of what these numbers, in fact, say about what's going on in this country among Canadians? What are we What are we talking yeah. about? No, that's it's a good question. Uh, the The issue isn't just a Canadian one; it's global. Uh, and there's just just this general sense, particularly in the developed markets of which Canada is one, that um, things just aren't as good as they were or they could be. So, for example, when we ask people, do you think you're doing better at this stage of your life than your parents did at the same stage of their life? Invariably, they tell us, for the most part, no. Uh, do they think they're making progress? No. Uh, do they feel overwhelmed by everything that's happening out there, including overwhelmed by technology? Yes. Uh, do they think the country is changing in directions that they don't like? Yes. So there's this just unfocused kind of general anxiety, concern, um, in some instances, anger about just the direction of the world these days, and Canada doesn't escape that. So when we look at this uh, this number, this 52% believe society is broken, and we're going to take a break in a moment, then I'll ask you about what that actually means, society is broken. But if we look at that number of 52%, what strikes me... Yeah. I'm sorry? It was 52. 52, right. What yeah. strikes me is that that is 15% higher than three years ago. Yeah, it is. It's actually 15%. We asked it a little even more recently than that. Over the last few months, it's ramped up. And, and personally, you know, if, if you're trying to look at an explanation, 
I think the you know SNC Lavalin and some of the events around that, uh, particularly when it comes to political institutions, it really affected people's views of how the system works. And so we've seen over the space of the last little while that uh, you know people are become more a bit more alienated from their political elites. When, when, just over half of the people of this country say they believe our society or society is broken. What does that mean? Well, it means that it's not working for them. That what they think is right and wrong doesn't seem to be happening these days. That there needs to be a bit of a shakeup of the system in order to get it back on track. In fact, you know, when we go out and we ask Canadians whether or not the country is on the right track or the wrong track, you know. Uh, um, Mid 60% tell, tell us now these days, and it's the first time I've ever seen it, that the country's on the wrong track. So there's a real, you know, bubbling anxiety within the Canadian population about the direction, not just of the country, but of the world. And then we look at the other number 67% say Canada's economy is rigged to advantage the rich and the powerful, and 61% yeah. say traditional political parties don't care about people like me, like, you know, the average, yeah. the average voter. And, and this, is, this has been coming on for a while, but I think that over the last six months, the events that they've been seeing in Ottawa really have made people, a lot of people roll their eyes as to, uh, as to what the values of, uh, of people who are working in politics and in business in this country, particularly you know, in some of, the, of some of our bigger companies, what they happen to be. And whether or not that these are things that are working on behalf of everyday Canadians or whether you know, it's, it's something that's benefiting a very exclusive group of the population. Right. And, and as far as the uh, traditional political parties don't care about me, you know, they, well, that made me think of, and I was speaking with Catherine Swift about this as well, another poll that we talked about, and that is when Canadians said they're about 200 bucks away from being in serious trouble. Well, you know, when they look at, uh, you know, different levels of politics, different politicians, people who are elites, they all kind of see them as being in the same, right. the same group or same group or category. Uh, when they talk about public policy problems, it's interesting you heard Scott Moe on your program, the Premier of Saskatchewan, talking about, you know, gate fences between federal and provincial levels of government. The public doesn't really see it that way. They just see problems and a desire for solutions. So the, to get everybody working together is really what, uh, what uh, our aspiration is. What's the fallout potentially? Uh, what, does, what does this poll suggest? The fallout may be politically. We have a federal election in just weeks, as we all know. Uh, what's the fallout for Justin Trudeau? And when we think about SNC Lavalin, uh, Admiral Mark Norman's going to be raised again. We have uh, the uh, ethics commissioner, Mario Dion, who was essentially selected by the Liberal Party, but was endorsed by the Conservatives as well, uh, declaring that Trudeau is guilty of two ethics violations. What's, what's the potential fallout within the parameter of, of all the numbers we've been talking about? Well, I think for the government, uh, going and telling people that things are great and that they should be reelected for another four years in this current environment is tough. There's a, there's a lot of signals here from the public that they're not really happy with the direction of the country. They're not really uh, happy with the functioning of our institutions, that they think something is not going in the direction that it should be going in. So to just simply stand up and say, you know, everything's great, we deserve another ride, is going to be tough for the incumbents. It offers an opportunity for the opposition as well, uh, which is to say, we agree with you, things are not going well, therefore we need to have a change. But when we get into that conversation of change, what is it that the opposition parties are going to, that are going to offer specifically to get things back on track? So I think, you know, this more existential type of a conversation, that environment, 
around that kind of thing creates a pretty combustible environment as we go through this uh, through this election campaign, and we we could probably we could experience some surprises along the way. Uh, we had some surprises on the 25th of October, 1993, Daryl, as I, as, I, as I recall, as you well recall. I was there. Yeah. So, you know, are we headed potentially toward another October night? It, it could. You know, at, at this point, Roy, I've got to be honest with you. I, and I'm always honest with you, but I really have to be <laughs> particularly honest in this conversation because normally uh, I'll get on... Uh, a conversation like this and look at the statistics and look at Canadian public opinion and say, I've got a pretty good idea where things are going or where they're headed. Today, I can't say that. Uh, there's a lot of things that are existing, like in this poll and other polls that we've done that, that show a very, very tenuous, potentially volatile, volatile environment in which what I'm seeing in terms of public opinion don't necessarily connect with how people are saying they're going to vote right now. Mm-hmm. Those things usually don't stay out of step for very long, and they're, they're going to lock in at some point. And if they lock in around the sorts of things that we're talking about today, it could be a very serious problem for the, uh, for the current government. What about the rest of the, uh, the world where this poll was conducted in developed countries? Are they feeling similarly to what we're seeing in Canada? Uh, if, uh, if you're looking at the rest of the world right now, Canada looks reasonably good compared to other places so for example if you're in brazil you're uh some of the numbers that you saw as being uh you know really bad on political institutions and direction of country and all that kind of thing are way way worse so if you ask people about political institutions in brazil 90 percent of the population uh is uh is, is unhappy you ask people in france similar kind of thing can you imagine the numbers that we're getting out of places like the uk and the united states these days yeah so canada even as bad as uh, these numbers suggest in, current, in terms of its own historical position compared to itself, still looks like uh, the sea of tranquility in comparison to some of the things we're seeing in other places. In about 45 seconds, the shift toward populism, what does that suggest? In, in about 45 seconds, sorry? In, uh, the shift toward populism. Yeah, well, the shift towards populism, I don't really see it as populism in the sense that populism is really driven by nativism. This idea that there's us and there's others, and we have to protect us. Uh, so uh, a lot of cultural change that's happening in other places uh, as a result of immigration is having some effect here, but not nearly as explosive, uh, combustible, or difficult as we've seen in other places. So Canada right now, it's really more uh, a disaffection from the elites and our institutions than it is about cultural change. Daryl, it's always great talking to you, and I, I learn a lot. And it's, you have your finger on the pulse. And right now, I think in sometimes some ways we're trying to find the pulse. Not not that there isn't one, but where the hell is it? Well, there is a pulse there, but you have to look really hard to find right. it. Right. Thanks for the time. Good talking to you. My pleasure. See you right. Bye bye. Daryl Bricker, President, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, co-author of The Big Shift: The Seismic Shift in Canadian Politics, Business, and Culture and what it means for our future. Perfect book to read right now. Now this week, the Federal Court of Appeal allowed six challenges to the construction of TMX to go forward, arguing Ottawa had not done sufficient and proper consultation with First Nations. We'll be talking tomorrow with the Energy Minister for Alberta about that. Meanwhile, the Federal Attorney General, now listen to this. This this is really important. I'm not lecturing. I'm just saying it's important. The federal attorney general registered no objection with the court to support the government's position that it had done due diligence. 
Why not? What's happened to common sense? Why is it impossible for many to grasp a productive and responsible energy sector, complete with pipelines, along with an ever-improving environmental safeguard, series of safeguards, is in Canada's absolute interest, and without which this country is severely damaged, and our national and particularly Alberta economies are being harmed, foreign investment is not what it used to be, some would say is fleeing, and there's an increasing debt load Canadians are carrying dramatically. We had the former premier of New Brunswick, Frank McKenna, on this program, the deputy chair of TD Bank, who told us about the study they'd done, which showed that over a seven-year period, this country lost $107 billion. And that's just in the sale of oil to the United States and just in the discount the Americans get because they're our only, you got it, customer pipelines. We have pipelines now. We have the ones that have been in place forever. But we also have, and uh, the uh, energy minister was, uh, was, was, was bellyaching about a train in Edmonton the other day. Take a look at those rail cars. They're actually tanker cars with oil in them. So what, what would you think about it? This is the way you think about it. So I tweeted, this is actually a pipeline. All right. The pipeline is in motion. It's the oil that's stationary. Dennis McConaughey is the author of Breakdown and uh, the Pipeline Debate and the Threat to Canada's Future. He's a former executive vice president of TransCanada um, uh, TransCanada Pipeline. That's right. Hey, Dennis, that's right? That's right. That is right. Okay, 40 years an energy executive and strategist, and, and you argue that Canada must find a consensus which balances proportionate credible climate policy with realizing economic benefits of continued development of Canada's hydrocarbon resources. Sometimes I can't read my own notes. So would you first please, uh, and it's a fascinating book, Dennis, I, I'm enjoying reading it. Yeah, I have a PDF version. Speak to the Federal Court of Appeal. Let me ask you to do this. Speak to the Federal Court of Appeal decision to hear six challenges to the federal government-approved construction of TMX. Where does that put us? Well, it's a very disappointing and frustrating development. Uh, it's important to understand what what occurred this week is they were granted leave to appeal. So the, the court is going to hear real arguments on both sides and from other third parties at some point down the line. But the contention that was put in front of this court that inadequate consultation had occurred um, was yet again, uh, this court chose to be responsive to that. And we now have more uncertainty. So just to, just to clarify for your listeners, um, last year when this court essentially nullified all the existing approvals because they had had the view that there had been inadequate consultation back in 2016, they ordered a new round of it. That, that new round of it uh, occurred under uh, the watch of Minister Sohi, mentored by a former Supreme Court Justice, Frank Abucci. Um that stretched uh, well into the second quarter of this year. And uh, various First Nations, most of whom are implacably opposed to this pipeline, contended that whatever that process was of negotiations, interactions, give and take, uh, didn't culminate in uh, a satisfactory set of meeting their demands. And so they claimed inadequate consultation. And all of this really has this country needs to sort of ask itself 
is this duty to consult, which is a duty that is primarily held by the federal government towards First Nations that are impacted by resource development, at what point are we in this absurd do loop where consultation is so far removed from any reasonable interpretation that it has now de facto become a veto? So uh, unlike some other commentators, I'm very chagrined that the court decided to give leave to appeal. It is disappointing that the federal government didn't have anything to say at the motions to granting leave. That, that is surprising. But it is, in, it is just another dysfunctional element of where um, we can't get, even when we apparently have approvals in hand, we still have the shroud of litigation after the fact, uh, potentially disrupting this project yet again. Yeah, let me look at the title of your book again. Breakdown, the Pipeline Debate, and the Threat to Canada's Future. It is absolutely stunning to me that we live in a nation which is so developed and is so um, incredibly successful that we're unable to come to a reasoned, not even reasonable, but a reasoned uh, decision on how to take advantage of what our natural resources provide, our energy resources provide this country, and take care of environmental concerns. This pipeline debate is pitting provinces against provinces and provincial governments against the federal government and Canadians and Cana- against Canadians. So you argue that we have to be able to find a way out of this maze. Where do we start? Well, uh, let's clarify one thing for your listeners. The fate of TMX and actually KXL are going to be determined now by the courts and by potentially uh, in the, on the U.S. side, certain politicians. Um, there's, so, you know, we're, those things are going to unfold against the backdrop of the existing legal processes that are in play. Um, and at some point, and I've long argued this, is that going forward, the federal government, the federal parliament really, has to try to, by legislation, has got to try to clarify what this duty to consult means, that it is no longer uh, a shroud of uncertainty that's going to be micromanaged by the courts. And even if such legislation gets constitutionally tested, it would at least have the weight of the federal parliament standing behind it. Number two, we need to um, repeal, if not, or at least amend substantially parts of Bill C-69, which, you know, creates many subjective standards that are going to facilitate more obstruction of future projects, future infrastructure projects. And there are real uh, money on the table going forward, particularly in terms of potentially future LNG development. And thirdly, we've got to get to a place on carbon policy where if we agree on what it is that our carbon policy is, it has to be coincident with permitting market access for these hydrocarbon projects to proceed with some kind of reasonable certainty. And it's long been my contention that, you know, the best way that this country would do that is is having a uniform carbon price across across the country. But importantly, a carbon price that was not open-ended, but was no higher than what our major trading partners are imposing on on themselves. 
and not use the frustration of pipelines or the resource sector as a kind of de facto um, carbon policy for those who are just inalterably opposed to it. So, I mean, these are the things that I articulate in my book, and I would hope that in whatever comes out of this next federal election, some of these ideas are actually seriously discussed. But uh, I can tell you that the level of frustration within Alberta is, is almost off the charts there, especially after the events of this past week. Yeah. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, eh, Dennis, to get this all done, and we should we should be able to... I don't want to well, say that I don't want to say the country's in I don't want to say the country's in 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 danger but at the same time I I I am worried about what I'm hearing what I've heard from premiers what I've heard from uh, from from people in the industry what I've heard from Canadians who are just fed up uh you know we hear okay so we have a prime minister who said he wants to all sands phased out but he buys uh, TMX and now he makes the argument that he wants to see it built but but his attorney general doesn't raise any objections with the federal court of appeal over these uh, these uh, these uh, uh, issues that the court adjudicated, or at least it decided, would go forward earlier in the week, there's just not mm-hmm. a sense of confidence that that we're that things are on the straight and the level. Dennis, I'm going to turn it over to you. We have about three and a half minutes here. What what do you absolutely believe that my listeners and Canadians need to know, need to hear? That's in that's in your book. That's going to be beneficial to this country. The problems that we're facing over pipelines. Well, I think the, the thing that Canadians should expect is honest answers to this upcoming federal campaign. They should, uh, they should ask every one of the major leaders, but especially Justin Trudeau, are you committed to a Canadian hydrocarbon industry or aren't you? Because if you are, then as a national government, uh, that has to translate into the realization of pipeline infrastructure, or else there'll be no growth in that industry and there will be an atrophying both of that industry and the economy of Alberta, to great loss to the country economically. Now, uh, the, the he, it is true that Justin Trudeau spent four and a half billion dollars uh, ensuring that the TMX project was not lost. That is the one project left that Canadians control. But he was also culpable in the loss of Northern Gateway uh, and Energy East. So, you know. And it is also true that when TMX was set back by the court, we've had almost a year's delay, and construction has, if at all, barely started, is now again uh, with this shroud of further court intervention. So I think the most, in the short run at least, do, do, do these politicians want uh, a growing hydrocarbon sector, or don't they? And if they don't, they should be explicit about that and not... Uh, coy and not relying on the perversities of Section 35 of our Constitution relating to Aboriginal rights or um, the invocation of various other tests under C-69 or a climate policy that actually makes future development almost impossible if we elevate meeting our Paris reduction targets at a cost beyond what any other country that we trade with is prepared to impose on themselves. So I think in the short run, that's what... I would hope Canadians ask of these people. Down the road, I would, again, just reiterate very quickly, we need to repeal or seriously amend C-69. We need to confront the... the, um, You have to create clarity on what it means to have the duty to consult, how that's going to be applied. That has to get leadership from the federal parliament. And we have to have a carbon policy 
that does not impose costs on Canada that are disproportionate to countries that we trade with and recognizes that Canada itself is not going to lead the world's path forward on climate okay. change and what to do about it. Dennis, we can only basically meet the terms of what the other world is doing. Okay. And at the moment, I have to stop you. the world is still on track for continued hydrocarbon right. I have to. I have to stop you. Because irony is I have to stop because we're out of time. Dennis, I thank you very much for joining us. I, I wanted to ask you about the uh, naming the book Breakdown, but I understand that now. Breakdown, the pipeline debate and the threat to Canada's future. Dennis McConaughey is the author. Thanks, Dennis. Thank Thanks you for so the much. time. Good talking to you again. My good friend, our good friend collectively, Catherine Swift, the former president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, working Canadians, not CA now, uh, Beauty and the Beast panel member. We're going to have to reconvene this panel as soon as the election is called. How are you, Catherine? I'm great, Roy. Glad Thank- to hear you had a nice break away from the crazy of social media. Yeah, you know, it was. <laughs> it, at first it was like withdrawal. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then it's nice. <laughs> well, I know. I, I turn on the phone and there'd be zero bars. Yeah. So where do I go? Where do I go? Where, where do I go to get a bar so I can watch, so I can read something? We all need that from time to time because, boy, it, it's, uh, it can be a cesspool, as well as being very helpful. So I'm, yeah. I'm not by any means down on that, but it's, it, can, uh, it can increase anxiety levels. <laughs> well, by day three, I didn't care anymore. I really, right. honestly, I did not care because I, didn't, I realized I didn't have to care because I was on vacation and I knew I'd get caught up. Mentally healthy. I would say. That's right. Mental health vacation. Now, before we get at what we're going to talk about, what about your thoughts on Bianca Andrescu, the 19-year-old who so confidently told the reporter or the interviewer in New York at the Arthur Ashe Stadium the other night, if I play my best game, I I like my chances. against Serena, I thought, good for you. I love her. I I love her. I've been watching her, of course, as we all probably have been. And Boy, I wish her all the best, needless to say, but it's so exciting, and she's quintessentially Canadian, you know? She's, you know, her parents originally hailed from elsewhere, Croatia, I believe it is. Romania. Uh, Romania, I'm sorry, Romania, and, um, and, you know, but she was born here in Canada, and she's refreshing, she's honest, uh, as you say, she's not trying to play that you know, games so many sports uh, heroes do, oh, shucks, you know, and, she, and maybe because she's so young, she hasn't learned those, uh, those ropes yet. But no, I'll be, I'll sure be watching her today. I, I think she's terrific. She's t- super talented. And, but her attitude, mind you, is, I think is what struck me because at that level, they're all super skilled. The, the head game, the heart game is what really matters. Yeah, absolutely. I love that little Canadian flag on her racket, on yep. the strings on her racket. Uh, I like her chances. I really like her chances today. Absolutely. I really do. Serena's been, you know, phenomenal, of course. But, uh, you know, at some point you yield to the next generation. Exactly. Now, on the the Ipsos poll, let's start with the 52% of Canadians, or 52% of Canadians, because it was an international poll and they broke it down into Canadian numbers. 52% of Canadians agree that society is broken. If you got 52%, I, I put this in my uh, in my blog piece, my editorial piece yesterday at RoyGreenShow.com. If you get 52% of a national vote, of the popular vote in a national election, Catherine, your your members are going to be spilling on both sides of the, of, oh, of yeah. the aisle. I read your blog, Roy, and, and yes, you're absolutely right. You're going to have a whacking great majority government is what you're going to have with that. And the more I sort of digested, I guess, the results of this survey, 
it kind of on the one hand is sad, but on the other, I'm almost encouraged by it because I agree. And, and I think, you know, you and I are kind of junkies. You know, we're political junkies. We, you know, we pay attention often because we're working in the milieu right. and things to, to all those issues, which average people, you know, they're going about their business. They've got, you know, dealing with family issues and so on. They, they don't necessarily do that. But when, when I saw there was concern, it was almost encouraging to me because I thought, yes, you should be concerned, Canadians. So I'm kind of happy you're not going, oh, no, you know, everything's beautiful, because it's not. And there's a lot of underlying problems that I think this survey it, it begins to tap into. So when you have more than half the population, more than half the national population, saying they say that society is broken, and you have uh, only 19%, disagreeing with that position what does that mean to you society is broken well i think some of it came out in other elements of the survey there was for example 61 percent said politicians uh don't care about them right so the people that we elect we have a democracy we you know we put a lot of stake in that as we should because it's sure is better than what we see happening in other places around the world, China being a notable current example. Uh, you know, when, when, when I saw all the different elements, I guess, of the survey, it seemed to me there's, there's a real cognitive dissonance, you know, a real kind of, we have politicians telling us, for example, you know, the liberals keep telling us, oh, the middle class, you're, we're doing everything for you, you're so much better off, and yet people know in their daily lives they're not better off. In fact, they're really worried about the future. Uh, well, remember there was a poll, there was an Ipsos, I'm sorry to interrupt, but there was a, I think there was an Ipsos poll just a couple of months ago where people said, clearly, a majority of Canadians are living paycheck to paycheck. And then exactly. if they miss a paycheck, they're in trouble. Yep, there was, there's been quite a few, actually, Roy. There's been a whole whack of surveys saying cost of living, number one issue. Right. We see uh, people saying, I'm $200 away from bankruptcy. That's the one, the that's the one the I was thinking about. You're right. There's been quite a few. But also, you know, we, we keep hearing about the environment. Oh, the environment. And no question, there are some issues there. But I think, again, this this no, notion of disconnect our, our politicians say, oh, we're gonna, you should pay taxes, average, you know, Canadians. But mind you, we're going to fly all over the world. We're yeah. going to go visit people on our giant yachts. When I, saw, when I saw the Obamas recently bought a $15 million mansion in Martha's Vineyard right on the water, but water levels are horribly dangerous, as you know. You know people, average people are going, no, this does not compute. Basically, you supposed leaders, you're lying to me. And I think that's what we're seeing, this, you know, this, this the concern about the average person. We see the elite keep telling us we should be doing more when they're doing absolutely the opposite. Yeah. And shame on them. <laughs> Catherine, there was a story uh, just over the last couple of days which has caught the attention of people across this country. And I think in some ways it speaks to the frustration, that what, what creates the frustrations, and maybe the, the populism, we have William Lacey, Chief Financial Officer for Steelhead Petroleum in Calgary, uh, s- telling the country that he tried to tour the Senate um, on Monday with his family, stopped by a security guard because he was wearing the T-shirt that says, I love Canadian oil and gas, and the world needs more Canadian energy on the back, T-shirt produced by Canada Action. And then the story goes on. The guard looked at me and he said, sir, I'm going to have to ask you to remove your shirt because some people may be offended by the message. Boom. Outrageous. I I mean, when I saw that, I just thought that our, our, what do we call it? It's not politically correct anymore. 
It's, uh, you know, leftist extremism, uh, envirozealot uh, disease has infected people that we pay with our tax dollars in Canada, a good portion of those tax dollars coming from the energy sector. This person, frankly, should have been fired from their job. They clearly thought it was okay. Something told them it was okay to say this to this gentleman. And I, I, uh, again, I guess you can't be surprised in this day and age. But again, Roy, this kind of incident underlies what we're seeing in the Ipsos Reid poll and, and, and other areas. People, it, it, it's gotten crazy. I think people were willing to accommodate to a certain point some of the more, you know, silly uh, again, politically correct or whatever, liberal, small liberal, um, over, uh, overstatements. But it's gotten into the crazy zone. This is one of them. I mean, immigration showed up on this poll as well, and I'm sure you'll be talking to Daryl about that. But you can't even talk about immigration now without being called uh, a racist, which is absurd. That's a super important issue, and Canadians are the most welcoming country in the world. Yeah, and check our constitution. is something and, in there exactly. about freedom of expression. And your average, your average person knows darn well, if you can't even discuss an issue, there's something very, very wrong here. And it's a freedom thing, too. I guess this is what I'm always, I'm so, you know, pro-freedom of speech and pro-freedom everything, even if I totally disagree with whoever's talking. Yeah. Um, this is the erosion of freedoms. Wearing a T-shirt, for goodness sakes? I mean, unless it says something, like, really hateful or whatever, this is just absurd. But again, it's, it's being promoted by our government in Canada right now. And, and so, yeah, and, and this is, that's a symptom of the overall disease. And, uh, Roy, you probably know, but a, a very interesting book came out this week, too, by Donald Savoie, a professor out in I'm New I'm going to be speaking with him, yes. Yeah, well, not oh, today, but I will be speaking he, with him. And he's a solid guy. I know him quite well. Anyway, but, but he was talking about a similar, a similar element in a more sort of academic uh, mm-hmm. context. But, you know, we have decisions now being made in our country by the, Supreme, the unelected Supreme Court. Well, that's a problem. our politicians. I, I tweeted that the other day, and, and I've always had an issue with, with appointed judges overruling elected parlamentarians. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, real, that's, that's a real issue. That's a real concern to me. Now, now, Catherine, in the minute and a half we have left, we, here we are in 2019, and we have this Ipsos poll, which is a real eye-opener. It really is an eye-opener. But we've been drifting or heading toward, sometimes involuntarily, toward this position, this this place that we're in now, apparently, for some time. And where do we go from here? So this has been going on for a while. Or it's oh, yeah, been no, building for a while. This is not brand new. Uh, the poll did see a pretty significant jump over the past three years. And certainly having the government, which has been highly dishonest and, and very contrary to what they originally said they were all about. They're not transparent, they're not feminist, you know, and they're certainly not for the middle class, is is contributing to all that. But, uh, I I mean, I would hope, boy, I don't know, we all live in hope, but I would sure hope that this election we have in not too much more than a month and a half, I guess, uh, Canadians will think long and hard about what they want this country to look at. Catherine, thank you so much, always thank you. Thank you, Roy, it's a pleasure, and go Bianca! Go Bianca. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca. I've been uh, I've been reading tweets by uh, Dr. David Jacobs on Twitter. He's at dr Jacobs Rad, radiologist, right? Co-founder of the Coalition of Ontario Doctors. He resigned from the board of the Ontario Medical Association, 
And on Twitter, he's a widely followed and active political commentator who I think may be considered a small C conservative. And I, and I contacted Dr. Jacobs. I asked him to come on this program. And he's agreed to do that. David, thank you very much. I appreciate the chance to talk to you. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you make the point on, uh, on, your, on your Twitter account that uh, I wrote, I, I guarantee that three years ago you would have never heard of me. I'm a suburban doctor, one of thousands, almost anonymous. So why have I tweeted almost daily for the last three years? Fine. Well, I think that um, really what happened is we had uh, quite a crisis, a healthcare crisis in Ontario, and uh, that got pulled me into the uh, medical politics in Ontario. And then what I saw was that the same crisis that we had in healthcare in Ontario was becoming a financial crisis in Ontario. And then uh, once Trudeau was elected and he brought the same team over uh, to federal politics, it became a national uh, crisis. And, and just how much trouble do you assess our health care reality in Canada to, to be at this time? How, how, much, how much trouble are we in that we don't need to be in? Well, it's, it's an interesting thing. So what we're dealing with in Canada is a complex combination of an aging population as well as a population that is always shifting under our feet as we uh, rely more and more on immigration to uh, replace our population. So we get uh, different types of disease. We also get um, a wider variety of uh, advanced disease as patients come to Canada who previously hadn't had proper care. So we're getting crushed from both ends, and we have aging in infrastructure on top of that. So it's it, we're, we're, we're in a crisis we're managing, but if you ever have uh, a health crisis yourself and you have to go through the system, you see that it's, it's a challenge at this point. Yeah, the sense that I have that many people repeat is that if you're in a really significantly emergent situation, then the system will step up. My, my feeling is it's more the doctors and the nurses and the staff of the hospital that step up. And they do, they, they go, they, they perform Herculean efforts to take care of somebody who's in an emergent situation. The system just isn't equipped to handle this anymore, but it's people, individual people whose empathy makes it possible. It's absolutely true. I mean, we we rely tremendously on the doctors, the nurses, the technologists, uh, the portering staff, the the, all the frontline healthcare workers are really pushed to the maximum. Um, But to say that we're able to deal with all uh, emergency conditions is not. It's just not true. Uh, One condition uh, that I keep uh, going back to is significant uh, subdural hematomas. So uh, what we see in, in Canada is as you get older, uh, your brain shrinks a little bit. It creates a little bit of room. The blood vessels between the brain and the skull are under a little bit of, a ten- of tension. And when an elderly person falls, they'll often get a little bit of blood between the brain and the skull. And that's when uh, that's one of the situations where we really see gaps in the system. We have patients that I, in my opinion, should be able to get emergency surgical care, but we simply don't have the neurosurgical beds. So there are areas where we're bumping into capacity issues, uh, and it does have real 
consequences for patients. So to say that we're at limitless capacity and we're always doing a good job, uh, I just think is no longer the case. And that should scare people because those problems will expand further uh, and not just the simple example of a subdural hematoma. Yeah. Let me pull you into the political arena. Sure. One, and, and I'm just looking at tweets that you've issued fairly recently. When I say Justin Trudeau and Gerald Butts, what do you say? Oh, well, I think that that's, uh, uh, <laughs> that's not much of a dream team, but it's a, it's a team and it's hurting Canada. Um, are, they a, are they a problem for the two of them together for, for Canada? If I'm just, again, I'm looking at the tweets that you've uh, retweeted or the thoughts you've expressed. I don't see a lot of, a lot of support. For Trudeau and Butts. From. <laughs> so I, I, I think By that, the way, um, we're in the we're we're in the same leaky canoe, you and I. <laughs> I think that um, Butts has uh, an ideological approach to government uh, that ignores the fiscal reality. So Butts thinks that the environment uh, should be paramount, regardless of what it does to the economy. And he seems to think that you can decouple the economy from the environment, and you can't. And then you have Justin Trudeau, who, in my opinion, is a bit of a face to the ideology. I don't think he's an intellectual force in any way, shape, or form. And I think he's basically the salesperson for this ideology. And yet he's not participating in a number of leaders' debates, and they're saying, well, it's because it does. they don't reach all or the majority of Canadians. What do you think about that? Well, that that's absolutely nonsense. We've seen whenever uh, Trudeau goes off script that he fumbles, he often misspeaks, he often uh, reveals information that probably his team would rather he didn't, uh, and sometimes he outright lies. Now, it could be due to... Uh, lack of information, or it could be due to the fact that the truth is going to be particularly damaging to him. So I think he's staying out of the debates because he's not going to win votes, and he's certainly going to lose some. Yeah. And and now to, to counter that likelihood, Mr. Trudeau has made, as you point out on your Twitter feed, over $12 billion in funding commitments in the run-up to the election, over 26,000 separate commitments. Uh, and, and yet, as you point out, Grassy Narrows didn't even make the list. Well, shouldn't that tell you something? So here's a group of people who have been literally poisoned over years. And this is the First, First Nations community. It's a First Nations community. They do not have the financial resources to fix their, their uh, grounds. They do not have the financial ability to clean their water. They're turning to the government and saying, you need to help us out here. We're literally being killed by our own drinking water. Uh, and uh, they went, and they went through the proper channels, and finally they turned into a protest movement. And in protesting, they embarrassed the Trudeau government. Trudeau's response to this, a mature response would be, you know what, you're right, we've got to do something about it. The Trudeauian response is, you crossed me, and now you're done. And they won't even let them into a building. Right. Uh, to, to protest. They're just marginalized. But yet we can find $12 billion of promises so that Trudeau can continue to hold on to power. How is that uh, proper governance? I know why I like your tweets. Because there's there's so much information. I mean this sincerely. And there's logic. And there's an expression. We, we can figure out most of it 
uh, for ourselves, but you, you guide us to the point where we, where we need to do that. One oh, last question for you. You left the Ontario Medical Association Board, and you co-founded the Coalition of Ontario Doctors. What is that coalition, and are there counterparts across this country? Well, actually, it was uh, I, uh, the Coalition of Ontario Doctors predated. Uh, that, that's a different organization. I left the Ontario Medical Association to found the Association of uh, the Ontario Association of Specialists, okay. or the uh, Ontario Specialist Association, and that was in order to get proper representation for specialists, so that we can uh, get the necessary funding so that we can perform our jobs properly. Uh, it's a very complex problem. The OMA is overwhelmingly governed by family physicians who have very unique problems. Specialists have different problems. Ultimately, the patient will benefit when specialists can make sure that we have the tools that we need to deliver specialized right. care. Dr. David Jacobs, thank you so much for joining us at DR Jacobs Rad is where you'll find Dr. Jacobs' Twitter account. Great talking to you. Hope you'll come back. Absolute pleasure. Anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.